Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. I'm super excited about the guest that we have today. I mean, he's absolutely incredible. You know, the amount of companies that he's built, you know, what he's doing right now. And I think that we're going to be learning quite a bit, you know, on what he's up to. And then also, I think that you're all going to find it super inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Sasha Mijot. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Hey, thanks, Alejandro, for the invite. Great. So originally born in London, but, uh, you know, obviously your your parents, you know, different nationalities and, you know, you also traveled quite a bit growing up. So how was life, you know, growing up? Give us a little of a walk through memory lane. Yeah, I mean, I've got, you know, very fond memories of my childhood. I've been very, very lucky. Um, as you said, I'm, I was born in London, Canadian father, English mother. I lived there until I was about six. Um my parents actually split up and my mother, who's the English one, actually decided to, to take my sister and me over to Canada and lived in Vancouver for about a year. Uh, my mum was a bit of, very young, but a lot of get up and go. Um, and we ended up moving down to Mexico, lived in Mexico, lived in Guatemala. Great experience. Got amazing memories. I learned, learned Spanish, obviously, uh, although I forgot it all when I went back to the UK until I came back to Spain. But that's another story. Um, so yeah, a lot of freedom. I also had spent a little bit of time in Greece, um, Switzerland, so traveled quite a lot as, as, a, as, a, as a child, um, which is a great experience. Not that structured. You know, I was never pushed on school results and things like that. I always did enough. Um, but I had just, you know, doing a lot of things, never at home, doing a lot of sports, uh, getting up to mischief. So I had a great, great childhood, very free. Now, in your case, too, I mean, when you travel so much and being so young, I mean, it's... Every time you you jump to a new place, it's like new friends. I mean, obviously, back then, we didn't live in the connected world that we're living in today. So I'm sure that moving so much also created quite a bit of uncertainty. So what do you think, you know, you really learned, you know, from that experience of um, of having to start over, you know, over and over and over again? Yeah, I haven't thought about it a little bit like that. But yeah, I mean, to me, um, I mean, for example, you know, um, fast forward, when I moved to Barcelona, I actually met my wife still my wife today a long time ago but and her her you know she's been in Barcelona all her life and actually the relation she has to long-term friends is unbelievable she's got friends that she's had you know for 40 years and and it's done and, and probably haven't had a lot of that because I've been was moving around a bit so I suppose it goes and certainly I've never felt that I felt the positive side of adventure but um but it does make you all sufficient right um because you can't really rely on stability and things like that um I suppose um, I haven't thought about it that deeply I mean, I'm sure that that helped you, you know, to deal with uncertainty later on, you know, in life. You know, look at you, you're an entrepreneur. So I guess uh, the, um, you know, one thing that comes to mind here is when you turned 16, you know, obviously one thing led to the next and and you leave home, you know, quite early, quite young. So what triggered that? Yeah, as I said earlier, I mean, I was doing a lot of sports. I was probably the, one of the smallest kids in the class and everyone kept telling me you should be a jockey. Um, and... Um, so I started, you know, to learn to ride a little bit at 14. It's, to be honest, horse riding and being a racehorse jockey are very different. The only thing similar is there's a horse underneath, but actually. So I just started getting familiar with horses. And luckily, my grandfather um, knew a racehorse trainer. And he just said, you know, when, when you're 16, give me a call and he'd come. So I went there when I was 16 and, and started, you know, 
in the beginning, you know, cleaning, cleaning horse boxes, groom, then you start, you know, training the horses and then you start racing. Um, it happens all very quickly. Um, I was the right size and, and I started racing. I raced for about four, four and a half years, three years in the UK. And then I, and then I was lucky to get the opportunity to go and race in the US uh, for a year. I was in East Coast, um, New Jersey, Meadowlands. And then I went down to um, Arkansas and Oaklawn Park. Um, and then I, and I went back to Monmouth Park. And I also spent a little bit of time in Belmont. Um, very cold. When Christmas at minus five, galloping horses around Belmont Park. I can tell oh you that. I, I know the feeling. I know the feeling of dealing with that weather. So, um, you know, one, one, one thing that I wanted to ask you here is, you know, here you are, a jockey. You got that competitiveness. I'm sure you love that, you know, the, the adrenaline no, of, of, of when those doors would open and you would just go like super fast. But the, um, you know, one thing that happened for you is that you transitioned. You transitioned into programming. I mean, it's such a, you know, quite a, quite a big difference no, from one to the other. So how do you you know, really encounter the world of computers and what caught your attention and why do you think it, what did you think at that point it made sense to, to switch careers? Yes. I mean, it sort of happened organically. I don't, you know, the right, right place at the right time sort of thing. Um, my mother was living in Barcelona. Um, I was in, in the East coast of the U S and I flew over to spend a few weeks in Barcelona. I fell in love with the city. Um, it was around when the Olympics were happening. Then there was a real buzz. Um, I hadn't really been to school. I hadn't really, you know, and I was sort of doubting, you know, should I go back to the US and continue riding? Should I go back to a lot of, and I decided to, you know, take a year off and spend there. And I said, what am I going to do? Because there's no horse racing here and, you know, I have to go to trade. So I thought, well, I'll learn, you know, I think computer programming has got a great future. Um, I'm sure I'll always be able to find work if I do. And um, so I, you know, went enrolled in a course, learned to computer program, got a job fairly quickly. And, um, you know, I was working for a company. Then I, Joined another company, actually ended up working for a bank, this computer programmer, a Brazilian bank, actually, who are no longer here, Banco do Brasil, very big, still, still huge, um, and running their computer systems. And then, and then this thing, we know, the internet came along around mid-90s, um, and I said, wow, this is incredible. I mean, you can send files across the world, and you can answer emails, and, you know, and I, you know, so I just set up a little company that was, um, you know, building websites and and then, and then that arrived into a hosting company where we were doing, you know, managing a lot of servers and a lot of domains for, for companies and corporations. It's a great name called servidores.com in Spanish. And, now, in that, in, in that case, too, is something interesting because you go from the web development, you know, agency slash consulting, you know, which is, you know, building something that is not repeatable and scalable to now, you know, you're, you're building this thing, you know, like you were saying, the web hosting company that, Ended up getting acquired, um, you know, for for a nice price tag, you know, for eighteen million bucks. Uh, and um, I guess you know the 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 question here that comes to mind is: this is the first time that you gained access to to the full cycle of a business, you know, from building it to scaling it to you know selling it. So, what kind of clarity did that give you on the cycles of a business? Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly the point. I mean, you know, we were building websites and, and basic the scalability of my first companies depended on how many people I had in the company, which is not very scalable, right? But at the same time, these companies were asking us to host their websites. And that is super scalable because you end up putting in a ser server and when you, when you go to sleep at night, you're still billing. Um, and, and then um, what derived from that, and actually the company we sold for $18 million at the time was, was actually... 
um, a services portal company, which had, you know, we started off with a pretty much a copy of Hotmail in Spanish called Latin Mail. We built a chat service. We built a search engine. And our reference at the time, uh, many of the younger viewers probably won't know this, but Yahoo at the time was the star, it was, you know, the Google of its day. And, and it, was a re- it was a Spanish version of, of, of Yahoo, to say. It was a very community building. And we ended up growing. We were the largest Spanish-speaking portal in the world. At the time, we had, I think, close to 18 million active customers. In the late 90s, is quite a lot. It doesn't seem very much today. Um, and we, we end up being acquired by a competitor, which is a New York-based company called Star Media. In the same business as us, the main difference, they had a lot of money and we had all the traffic. And we were quite just before we went public and we actually went public with Star Media on the NASDAQ. Um, and people don't know this, but in those days, this is May 1999, Star Media was actually the company pre-IPO who'd received the most amount of capital at the time, full stop. And in those days, it was $90 million. <laughs> now, that seems like nothing. But um, it's an interesting story, Star Media. It ended up being acquired by, by France Telecom and their internet unit in those days, which was called One Um And I ended up joining them after that. But it was a good ride. And it was, um, you know, it was an amazing growth period. Um, and, and as you said, it was scaling very quickly. Um, we were actually doing fundraising in the U.S., um, we weren't intending to be sold, and and Star Media gave us a call and and offered to acquire the business. It was very important for them to acquire it pre-IPO, um, and it sort of worked out very quickly. Very nice. Now, you know, as they say, once an entrepreneur, always an entrepreneur. But in your case, you know, once this company got acquired, it took you 15 years to go at it again. You know, like because you worked at the Wanadu, you worked at the Betfair. I mean, obviously, I'm sure that you gained you know several skills, but why did it take you so long to start your next company? When, when France Telecom, now Orange, um, acquired the business, um, I think I stayed there a couple of years or a year, 18 months. Um, I had a big team. I was integrating. I was doing a few interesting things within the group. Um, and I was generally enjoying myself. But at the end, I really wanted to do something else. And funnily enough, Betfair, which in its day was fairly revolutionizing in, in sports betting, they, they invented what was the betting exchange, which is actually instead of betting against the house, you'd bet against other, other users, which was quite unique and amazing. And I was a big fan in the distance. And obviously, with my horse racing background and technology, I understood the betting industry really well. And I understood, um, obviously, tech. And, and um, somebody reached out to me. Obviously, somebody spoke about me that I... Um, and we just started talking. They were just expanding internationally. They were in the UK. And, and, I, and I remember saying to Vicky, I said, Look, you know, I think this is going to be a great fun thing for me to do for a couple of years until I know what I want to do. And I ended up staying there nine years and, and met some really, really talented people, um, had a great time. I was also very much product tech person until then. Now suddenly I was building a commercial business, much on the other side of things, managing marketing spend, uh, managing. Um, so I learned quite a lot there. Um, and, you know, the guy who hired me, a guy called Neil Walsh, amazing, one of the best guys I've ever worked with, ended up leaving a little bit earlier and he ended up running uber's international business um so basically when the uber decided to move out of the u.s he was the guy who launched i don't know hundreds of countries or thousands of cities and he ended up leaving and then in the end he became when i when i could he became global's chairman and he really was institutionalizing in building the, the playbooks to help us grow so quickly um certainly the last five years um so you know cause effect i mean um you know i'm sure if neil hadn't joined us um, we would have been a different place. And I was lucky in that fair that he actually hired me. So then how 
how how did then because obviously after like 15 years like working you know having your 9 to 5 you know you turn the light off you go back home you know it's you get you get comfortable you know so so at what point does the idea of global you know come knocking and and why did you decide to go for it yeah i think you do get comfortable that's fair uh, i'm definitely not a 9 to 5 i mean i'm really passionate about what i do i don't i don't think it's actually about starting your own company i'm you know I'm passionate about doing things for other people as well. So I think, I think it just came to time, you know, I mean, where I could have stayed in the gaming industry, um, Bedford offered me a role in, in Dublin. I said, you know, I'm not interested in a moving to Dublin and probably being in this big corporation that we'd, we'd become huge, right. We'd gone public as well. And I thought I was at the age where I really, you know, I should be starting to do something else on my own. Otherwise, um, I think you're, you do get too comfortable. And I thought, you should, you know, why stay in the gaming industry? That's so easy. Why don't you do something different? And I think, you know, there was also this theme then in those days. As we talk about it less, but it was this sharing economy things and these companies like Airbnbs, the Ubers, you know, all this thing about using resources and, and turning it into economic, you know, sharing your, your flat, putting a renting a room out, um, sharing your car. There was this whole movement around sharing economy. And I was starting getting really involved with that and getting excited. And I think, I think Uber was was my reference of what they were doing with ride hailing, how they disrupted it with technology. And, and I, you know, that'd be amazing to do an Uber of things was my, was the thing I started talking a little bit about. So I left Betfair sort of Jan the summer of 14 and 2014 and um, found a couple of investors, told them my idea, look, um, and we started pushing it. Um, this idea very quickly, I ran into Oscar who's, who's, who came, who was coming up from the US, he'd been studying there in Georgia Tech, and he had pretty much a very similar idea. He was a bit more advanced. He was actually, you know, he'd already had a, a had a sort of name, and he was, he was actually closing his, his pre-seed. And we met, and I said, hey, why don't, why don't we join Force, and I'll, I'll join your project, and let's do this together. And, um, and luckily, you know, um, he was all for that. And the rest was history. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out.
exactly. Now, what were the early days of Global Like? Because at the beginning, you guys didn't have a lot of money. No, I think the the the, the pre-seed was around 100k. I think we ended up doing 140k um, euros, and we launched. We hired you know a very small team, very junior, and for me it was tough because I'd been in senior roles, so generally my my reports were quite senior. So it was a good learning curve for me as well. Um, and we 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 grew organically. We launched in Barcelona, and then very quickly we decided to launch in Madrid. But we didn't have money to spend on marketing, so it was pretty much you know some very clever PR and getting noise out there. But just organically, we we were growing. Um, you know, obviously not the speed you do with a fully fledged company, but we we were growing around, and then and that gives you the feeling you're onto something. You know, when something just grows and people, you know, I I received so many emails. Um, with with hardly any orders from people saying, what a great idea, the service actually works, it's amazing, then I probably received with millions and millions of transactions in Betfair in nine years. I probably received more than six months in global. Um, and just, we knew we were onto something and there was a, and there was a attraction. And, and quickly we became a buzz um, company within the tech ecosystem in Spain, which is quite relatively, it's bigger now, but it was very small. People were talking about us, this hot startup from Barcelona, and that really helped. And we quickly did... Um, Pretty much by the end of the summer, um, 2015, um, we closed what was a seed round uh, for quite a, a lot more, like around two million, um, a big jump, and that really allowed us to scale. We quickly went to more cities in Spain, Italy, Southern Europe, and we'll talk about the uh, financing in just a little bit. I guess for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Global? How did you guys make money there? Well, the first year and a half, we had. Global 1.0, which was pretty much, there wasn't a solid business model behind it. It was much more, granted, it was basically you could order whatever you want. You'd have a but, two buttons in the app. Basically, we'd go to any any store or restaurant in your city. You'd tell us what you wanted. We'd go there. The courier had a, had a credit card. He'd pay, um, very manual, pick up the goods and take it. Um, or you could actually send or, or deliver anything in the city, maybe keys, anything, you know, a document from your and not very scalable, uh, very manual, but very wow. No, very, imagine you can send somebody to the, your, your favorite shop in Washington and pick something up for you. That was like, wow moment. But um, also, you know, we pay the couriers fixed fee uh, sort of, um, of, per, per delivery. Um, we charge the customer as well, a very high delivery fee of five euros. So not very scalable mass wise is a big, and we weren't working with any of the stores or restaurants. We didn't have a commission model. Move ahead pretty much a year and a half later, uh, Global 2.0, which is probably the business model, the base of it today, which is a lot more scalable and a lot more automatic, is let's close agreements with, with stores and restaurants. They pay us a commission. We can use that commission to lower the delivery fee for the customer. It becomes a lot more widespread that more people can afford the service because if you, you know, it's costing you one euro, one euro 90. And and then there's a scalable business model there where with economics begin to work and then you offset the courier costs. Um, and the objective, obviously, is to make, you know, a little bit on every order covering the courier's costs and using the commission and the delivery fee to offset that. And that's probably the, the business model uh, per se. And since then, um, you know, we've done, well, over 500 million orders in the last that's eight years. Nice. That's a lot of orders. That's a lot of orders, Sasha. So I guess the... Um... You know, question here is obviously, you know, to to scale something like this, I mean, it requires a lot of money. How much capital have you guys raised to date prior to the acquisition? Yeah, we I think we've raised close to 
you know, 900 million euros all in all. I mean, it's very, you know, capital intensive business we're in. It seems like a lot of money, but if you look at every single one of our competitors, they had a lot more money. In fact, it was, you know, David versus Goliath. And, you know, we had big companies coming to Spain and spending a lot of money to try and take leadership. And it was, it's been tough. So, um, so from a fundraising perspective, as, as far as seems a lot and, and it is a lot of money, but in our industry, it's actually not that much um, compared to, you know, the Uber Eats, I mean, even Deliveroo, um, you know, um, companies like DoorDash, where you can, you can look at the histories of their, their finances. It's been um, a lot of, I think, capital intensive growth, but, but fighting off some gigantic companies. Um, and I think we've done, you know, we're in 25 markets today and um, we're pretty much leader in most of those. So it shows that we've managed to fight them off. And how was the uh, journey of, of raising, you know, the 900 million? Because, you know, being in Spain, the market is perhaps not as developed as the U.S. Uh, and maybe the funds, they're not as big. So this is a lot of money. So how was the journey, you know, of raising this money and going from one cycle to the next? I think that the, there's a few things that were a little bit stacked against us. Um, I think we're a little bit later in fundraising than, than most of our competitors. So it meant that they were already pushing hard in markets where we were competing with, with more capital than us. And investors saw that as high risk, as in can this you know, smaller startup from Barcelona, um, could they compete? Will they have enough capital to compete? Are they going to be one of the winners? There was a feeling it's a bit of a winners take all market or certainly wi winners take all market. And if you left in third, which is, in my opinion, very correct. I think there's a lot of advantage in our industry network effects that um, leadership or co-leadership or being one of the, the major players doesn't leave much room for. So there was a doubt and fundraising was really difficult for us, um, which, which, you know, I mean, I remember one round, I think it was the Series C. I mean, we had, you know, 110 no's until one VC said yes and decided to lead the round. Um, and, we, and we've had rounds where actually we've had to put money ourselves into that, was, that were very late and we've had to actually finance to make sure, you know, the, the people's pay slips could have been paid. So it was tough. Um, it doesn't seem like it from the outside. But it was, um, and also I think it's less so today, but in then there would be no major startup, scale up, you know, unicorns out of Spain at the time. So it was, there was a certain thing. There was a bit of that. We got that from a couple of investors saying, you know, there hasn't been anything major out of Spain. You think you can really compete on the world scale. And we were, because we, we were trying to compete at the European level, um, Eastern Europe, Latin America. So we had a very wide geographical span. Um, and it made, there's a positive side of that. We had to do more with less, right? We had less access to capital. So we really had to do more. Uh, with less resources. So I think it made us internally a better company. And definitely more effective. So I guess the um, the question here is for the people that are listening, to really get an idea on the scope and size. I mean, you were alluding to it with the 500 million orders. Anything else that you can share in terms of uh, scope and size, perhaps like number of employees or anything else that you feel comfortable sharing? Yeah, I think we're close to 4,000 employees, a little bit over worldwide. When Again, I said we're in 25 countries. We're in very different geographical when we where we started which is southern europe um we're in eastern europe that's poland or the baltic region um we also cover a lot of the ex soviet union countries georgia um kazakhstan kyrgyzstan ukraine 
Uh, Ukraine's an interesting story how we had to close down the business when the war started and actually the local authorities reached out to us to reopen. Um, and now it's pretty much 80% um, close to where we were pre. Um, the team there is amazing. Um, just an example to everyone. And, and we're in Africa, we're in seven countries in Africa. Meanwhile, we've, we've actually um, sold our business in Latin America. We wanted to really focus this side of the Atlantic and double down. There's a strong competition there, a lot of players. And we had the opportunity to leave and it was a very good, very good agreement. So, um, so we're very, very, very different parts of the world, very different um, economics, culturally, language. Um, so yeah, we've, we've grown and, um, you know, really happy at the team. We, we give a lot of local um, leadership to the teams that we're, we're a global business, but very locally run, you know, the strategy in, in sub-Saharan Africa is not going to be the same in, in the Mediterranean region or obviously Eastern Europe. There's, the the go-to-market often changes the media we use, what's effective, how operations work. So it sounds like things saying, you know, we're heading in the right direction. So at what point does the acquisition of Delivero, you know, come to mind and and why did you guys decide that was the best route to follow? Delivery Hero um, was, was an investor for a number of years. Um, an important investor. Um, we we knew that you know they were on a board. We we have we knew with them. They knew the business, um, and it just seemed the right right thing to do. We were covering geographies um, that they weren't covering. Um, I think we feel and and felt that you know they're going to be one of the winners in this in this space. They give a lot of autonomy to the to the local brands. Delivery here at the end of the day is an umbrella brand for a number of different brands worldwide. They they let you know the teams run the business, um, and it just seemed um, you know it seemed the right thing to do. Um, I've been in a couple of publicly traded companies. It's it's quite romantic, but at the end of the day, you know it's a lot of reporting, a lot of change of focus. Uh, your numbers not going in quarter. It's going to be public. It changes the dynamics of company. I think it's a bit of an ego trip taking public, but actually once you're there. Um, so, you know, it just seemed to work and um, and we decided to kick on with that. I'm very nice. glad, very happy. And they, were the terms of the transaction disclosed? Yes, they were. So what were what were those terms? 2.3. 2.3 billion. Good stuff. Now, the integration of something like this is not easy, right? Because it's different cultures, you know, different things that need to blend together. And, and as they say, most acquisitions fail. So what, you know, are some of the things that you've learned about effective integration? Well, in our case, it was quite easy. We already knew the CEO, the COO, um, had a lot of admiration for them. They were on our board. Um, so, so that part of it. Also, again, I mentioned there's not necessarily integration. They leave the companies quite independent. So actually, pretty much from the operational perspective, not that much has changed, except we don't have to do fundraising anymore, which is... That's right. Um, and and there's a guarantee in the project, no? So I think in that sense, I think now if you look from from our acquisition or my historical acquisition perspective, yes, it's, generally it's difficult. It's difficult to keep founders um, interested, aligned culturally. It's it's one of the big big things. Some companies, I don't think there's a magic wand here. I've seen companies who don't really care. They they're going to acquire the business and have a plan to make sure that business works well within their organization. And there's others who actually try and keep the, the, the founders and the management team super so we don't want to lose that. 
and they can have their independence. I think to achieve the second, you really have to allow um, acquired companies to, to remain independent and make their decisions. You know, I, I, I sense, and I'm not, don't know much about the insights running, but you, I get the sense that, you know, WhatsApp to a certain extent, um, you know, within Facebook or Meta now has been pretty much left independent. It's an, and it's a massive company. And, and I wonder if they ever, you know, try to integrate that with Facebook messaging at the time um, and tried to integrate it within their core things probably would have killed it. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how the, the history around that, but that's a good example of, of, a, of a company using a massive asset and leaving it independent. And you could probably say the same about um, Google's acquisition of YouTube and how they just kept it as, um, I believe a lot in that, um, of, of, you know, allowing, if they, if, you know, if a team's doing a great job, keep them motivated and, and, and let them continue building something you can bring value back to your business at some point later on so Sasha you're a pro and when it comes to entrepreneurship I mean you've been you've been at it for a while right I mean you've been at it since since 95 I mean incredible the amount of battles that you've had you know the amount of successes the amount of the amount of you know failures which I guess you know I don't call them failures I call them you know lessons learned And uh, if I was to give you the opportunity of getting into a time machine and going back in time and going back in time, maybe to 95, you know, where you were like, you know what, I'm going to start something on my own and being able to have a chat with your younger self and being able to give that younger Sacha one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? One thing that has always served me very well and I've been very lucky and I don't know how but it's not science behind this but I'm pretty good at choosing you know partners and 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 you know and people to do that and I think you know a you know I wouldn't do things alone you need compensation you need diversity I mean you know it's a roller coaster building a, a company it's difficult enough to make it successful but but also the longer it is you have ups and downs and it's great to do this with with super talented people and I've been lucky from from the beginnings from Latin Red, um, you know, and, and obviously with Oscar now, amazing guy, superstar. Um, I think, you know, surround yourself with super talented people who are better than you, um, who compensate your your strengths. You know, don't have too many people the same. You know, the tip of one, you know, extrovert will get an introvert or if you're super detailed, we'll get somebody who thinks higher level. Um, people compensate for each other quite well. Um, surround yourself with good partners um, and, you know, people that you that you admire and you want to have a, you know, that you don't need to work with but would enjoy having a drink with, would enjoy passing time together and inspire you. Um, that's probably been my trait. And, and again, I don't know why, but I think that, that's probably my, my biggest asset that I, I can identify and um, work with them. And, like, you know, I, I would definitely advise that. That's my, I think, do things with a good team. I love it. So, Sasha, for the people that are listening that I would love to, you know, reach out and say hello, what is the best way for them to do so? Yeah, I mean, I'm on Twitter. Um, that's probably the best way. Easy to find me. Um, I'm super accessible. Love, love talking to people. Um, you know, there's so many things happening in the tech space. It's just amazing um, how, we, you know, with technology, we're really making people's lives um, better. People have more time to do You know, people sometimes forget, we had this conversation the other day, you know, about this, there's a bit of this text consuming us and we're connected too many times. But, but we all forget that you couldn't 
used to be able to, you know, get a flight on a Thursday night and then work remotely from your house or, or answer emails at the airport. And, and, you know, people have a lot more free time thanks to technology or they can work from different places thanks to technology that sometimes we want our cake and eat it. And technology has given so many people so much flexibility of movement. And my grandparents would go to one country a year. Um, you know, my parents got a few more, but now, I mean, you know, our team, you know, 30 year olds are, are going to 10 countries and working from there and then coming back to the office. I don't know. We should um, embrace technology and for the good things it does. It's not all good, but most of it is. The digital nomads. No kidding. No kidding, Sasha. So uh, I just have to say thank you so, so much for being on the show here with us today. It has been a, a real honor, Sasha, to, to have you with us today. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, Alejandro. Good speaking to you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.